Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on March 14, 2019, Maximizing Your FDII Sense, the proposed Section 250 regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo, a partner in PwC's International Tax Services Group, Nini Dewar, a principal in the International Tax Services Group, Olya Suber, a partner in the International Tax Services Group, and Karta K. Singh, a principal in PwC's Transfer Pricing Group. This excerpt consists of an in-depth discussion of documentation issues. Have a listen. Okay, <laughs> Nini, documentation, big part of these regs. Yeah, so I think, you know, we talked about computation and categorizing the income. You can qualify for, you know, under all the definition, but then whether you actually get the benefit of it depends in large part on documentation. Um, so the, the proposed regulations provide some specific rules around um, documentation and what needs to be obtained by when in, in order to, um, to claim the FDII benefit. And... And the types of documentation really depends on um, sort of the, the types of the transaction, whether it's sales or services. And within sales or services, depending on the types, um, there, there will be some different requirements. So generally, you would have to, to substantiate uh, whether a, a person is a foreign person for the sale transaction or uh, whether the property is located, uh, sorry, whether the property is, is for foreign use in the sales context or if it's the services, whether the, the location of the service recipient is outside of the U.S. or the, the property with respect to which the services are provided are, are located outside of the U.S. So we'll go through some of those um, requirements in more detail, but the, the overarching thing also in the documentation space is in order for the documents to be reliable um, for, for this purpose, is, uh, you, you need to meet uh, certain requirements. And, and those include uh, when um, for, for the, the reliability requirements to be met um, as of the FDII filing date, which is essentially the, the date including the extension that the seller or the service provider uh, have to file the tax return that will report the, the, the gross income uh, that could be eligible. So as of that date, uh, the FDII filing date, the, the service provider or the seller must not, um, does not know or does not have a reason to know that the, the document is unreliable or um, incorrect. And then the documentation has to be obtained um, no later than the, the FDII filing date, and it, it cannot be obtained more than one year before the date of the sale of service. So this is kind of important uh, in terms of the documentation because you need all the documentation done before um, the filing date, essentially, to, to be able to claim the benefit. Then um, a, a couple of other uh, considerations uh, that that are included in the DISREC package uh, before we get into the specific sales and services transaction. Um, the first one around uh, the partnership. So the proposed regulations provide for uh, an aggregate approach in determining the, the domestic corporate partner of a partnership uh, share of the FDII. So essentially, um, the, the partners would look 
through to the income of the partnership and, and do the analysis at the partner uh, level based on um, the allocated uh, share of, of the, the partnership items of income and, uh, and asset. Um, the, the second piece in the partnership is uh, the, the proposed regs provide that a partnership is considered a person for purposes of determining whether the sale to or by the partnership or a provision of services to or by the partnership uh, would qualify as a, a FDDEI uh, transaction. So essentially, if you have a, a domestic partnership, then that would be treated as a U.S. person. If you have a foreign partnership, then that's a foreign person. So any sale to or from or services provide to or from will be treated accordingly. Um, Mike mentioned about the Section 962E election in, in the individual space. So uh, just to, to highlight again that uh, the proposed regs provide that if the individual makes a Section 962 election, then they will be eligible for the Section 250 deduction, but only with respect to the guilty and Section 78 grows up. In the consolidated group um, space, the, the proposed regulations consistent with the way the guilty uh, proposed regulations uh, provide um, are, are adopting the aggregate approach in that the uh, the various elements to calculate the, the, the Section 250, including the DEI, FDDEI, the, the intangible income return, and, and the, the guilty, will be um, looked at at each of the members, aggregate all of those um, elements from each member to calculate um, the group's um, number, and then uh, the taxable income of the consolidated group will be used to determine the overall Section 250 deduction for the group. And once that overall deduction is determined, then the amount is allocated back to the to each individual member based on essentially the, the, the FDDEI and, and guilty of, of the respective member. Okay. Oh yeah. So what, sale. yeah, what what is the FIDEI, or I can just say it's FDI sale, right? Or the sales, or sort of the what transactions really sale transactions would qualify for the FDI regime, and the the regulations set out, you know, very detailed uh, sort of uh, architecture around it and around the definitions. First of all, you need to determine whether it's a sale of intangible property or a general property. And the reason for that uh, definition or dividing the sales into two parts is just because then the requirements for eligibility and then the documentation of the foreign use of the underlying property is very different for the two. The general property is defined as... um, property that's not intangible property, and also there are some securities and commodities that are excluded from the definition of general property. So for the FDI sale uh, to be eligible, right, it needs to be a sale of general property or intangible property to a foreign person for a foreign use. We sort of underscored and highlighted those two prongs because those are the the two conditions that you need to meet and also have documentation to support that the property is really sold to a foreign person and it is for foreign use. Uh, Section 250, the statute itself, uh, defines sales, very sale very broadly. It includes a lease, um, a license, exchange, or other disposition. And then in addition, the proposed regs clarify that a sale would also include right, a transfer 
um, in which a gain is recognized under Section 367, right? So if we have a transfer of intangible property that's subject to 367, and the transferor U.S. corporation receives deemed royalty under 367D or a lump sum payment, that payment will be eligible for FDAI um, just if, if we meet all the other requirements, right? Um, sales to uh, related parties, and I would probably say it needs to be sales to foreign related parties, right? Can, can also qualify for FDII as long as certain conditions are satisfied. There are additional requirements uh, for related party sales. And essentially what it means is that the related party must then either sell the property to unrelated party or use the property in a sale to unrelated party. And that second leg of the transaction by itself should qualify as an FDDDI sale. Um, the code section itself and then the, the preamble to the reg uses exactly that language. It says that under no circumstances, a sale to a US person can qualify for FDII. And probably the only exception from that rule that is provided in the proposed regulations are the military sales, right? So the sales to the US government um, for resale or on services to foreign government um, under this Arms Export Control Act, right, would qualify for the deduction um, you still need to meet all the other eligibility and uh, documentation requirements for that purpose. Okay, important point though, because you've got a lot of contracts that are in place right now that run through a U.S. person. We may have to revisit those or even through U.S. distributors and um, lines of, of, of distribution are going to have to change. That's right. Um, so let's talk about the first prong quickly. There's uh, not much there, but again, you um, you know, the, what is the foreign person determination? It both applies for general and intangible property sales, right? It, and it's actually a uh, an obligation of the seller to establish that the recipient is is a foreign person by obtaining certain documentation. Uh, a second requirement is as of the FDII filing date, so as of the date that you're filing your tax return, the seller does not know or have reason to know that the recipient is not a foreign person. The proposed regulation provides sort of a, a types of documentation that, that you can collect uh, from, from, from the buyers uh, to determine their foreign status. And one of them, as an example, is a written statement uh, provided by the recipient that the recipient is not a foreign person. Uh, there is an exception for small businesses and small transactions. That exception shows up here in this documentation requirement, but then we see throughout the regulations as well. Small business is defined as a, you know, as a business with a gross revenue less than 10 million uh, for the prior year. And then there is also an exception for small transactions. So for businesses that are not small businesses, but have transactions that generate less than five million of revenue from one single uh, purchaser, right, or the render of service, uh, that, that five million, right, that transaction uh, would qualify as a small transaction. And for, for those transactions, the, you know, the documentation requirements are simplified. Um, and just using, in this example, just uh, using a shipping address as a proof of the, uh, the fact that the recipient is outside the U.S. Uh, would be sufficient. Okay, Nini, I want to, there, there's already been um, a harmful tax practice investigation that has been announced by the OECD. We know there's other things out there. We know there's a possibility of individual country action, there's EU action, and then there's, of course, threatened WTO uh, action that, that at least some are threatening. Um, what does all this mean when you're, you're looking at these roles? 
I mean, I, I think you've got to consider not just the U.S. rules. We can debate about whether, you know, if we have a new election, we'll have different government, will the rate change? But um, just looking outside the U.S., to your point, the OECD is clamping down, um, so this could be subject to sort of review on that. Um, we started to see foreign countries start to introduce the rules and, and think about, um, or some of the rules that they introduced, there's also an analysis to be done whether that rule would apply to FDII denying essentially the deduction locally. So I think you'll see a lot of, of um, local country deduction or, or uh, restrictions that might impact the, the benefit of the FDI. So you might get the benefit in the U.S., but then you're losing right. deduction offshore. And then um, WTO, I, I think there's a concern that that will get you know brought up, but I think you're going to see a lot more of the the individual country reaction before anything else. Well, but hopefully if, if uh, the regime makes it through the OECD and through EU and through WTO, the individual countries will then realize they need to get in line. Um, I do think this is quite different than other regimes that we've had challenged. Yeah. Um, it, it does need to be read uh, along with our other provisions, and I think in that sense it's much more defensible and actually a real strong argument that it isn't a harmful tax practice or, or a violation of our of our trading obligations. So moving on to uh, foreign use general property. Yeah, and I, I'll walk you through, right, as I mentioned uh, before, for sale of property, the foreign use determination is uh, different for general property versus um, uh, intangible property. So for sale of general property, the foreign use occurs as if you meet two requirements, uh, one of the two requirements, the property is not subject to domestic use within three years of delivery, or the property is subject to manufacture, assembly, or other processing outside the US before the domestic use of the property, right? And the domestic use here means it's just either use or consumption of property in the US or further manufacturing and assembly in the US. And interesting on this piece, the uh, Treasury requested uh, comments on impact of kind of this approach to supply chains and how the you know things move through the supply chain within organization to kind of fit into these um, this framework right for the foreign use the um, what the manufacturer assembly and other processing right that that uh, concept uh, has quite a bit of uh, in, kind of infrastructure built around it in the proposed reg regulations uh, the regulations tell us that a mere packaging or labeling of property would not meet this standard. Uh, to meet the this standard, you either need to sort of uh, property needs to go through a material physical modification, or it can be a component that goes into a second product. And to be uh, you know treated as only a component, uh, there is a threshold test that it needs to be you know less that first product needs to be less than 20% of the fair market value of sort of the end product that then goes um, uh, to the end and end users. Um, the proposed regulations also provide uh, specific rules for other type of property, whether maybe that general rule um, is just impossible to, uh, to utilize because of the nature of the property. So uh, some properties are really more of a fungible uh, nature. It's very difficult to determine kind of what is really the end use uh, or whether it's going to be foreign or domestic. For fungible property, taxpayers can document or sort of 
confirm the foreign use by um, using statistical sampling, marketing research, or some other similar uh, similar methods. And the rules also provide uh, certain de minimis rules. As an example, if taxpayer can prove that more than 90% of the fungible property is for foreign use, then the entire amount of that sale would be um, considered eligible for FDII. Uh, the other set of uh, you know, rule, specific rules apply to international transportation property. Um, that there, the foreign use really looks at after the date of the delivery of, of this, let's say, aircraft. If during the three-year period, this aircraft spends 30 uh, more than 50% of the time outside the U.S. and looking at the miles traveled, more than 50% of the miles located outside the U.S., then that sale would um, also qualify for um, FDII. Just as I'm clicking the next slide, I just want to say that the, the reference to manufacturing is very much the, the 954 that's right. D rules, add, yes. less substantial contribution, but that's because you're not looking, are they the manufacturer? You're looking, is the property manufactured? So it's actually mm -hmm. the same as 954 D. Just wanted to highlight too, we did get our polling results back. Uh, the winner was the, the expense apportionment, but barely documentation within one percentage point. Yeah. So that, that seems to be the, the focus. So turning back to foreign use intangible Yeah, properties. just to, to finish on the, on the sale so we can move to, to services, right? For intangible property, it's a different standard for the sale of intangible property. Foreign use really looks at the location of where the property generates revenue, right? From exploitation of this property outside the U.S. And um, different from the general property where it's more of a or or nothing approach here it is possible to qualify you know a portion of the revenue from the sale of the intangible property as fdii and again sale here could include a sale and a licensing as well including 367d so here if the property is is used both within the united states and outside the united states then the foreign use is then really determined proportion to, to the revenue that is uh, being generated um, to the total outside the U.S. to the total revenue. Uh, for um, intangible property, right, that is just used in the either development or the manufacture, sale, or distribution of the product, uh, the foreign use determination looks at the location of the end user of the products, right, that basically utilizes this, this IP. Um, in certain cases, right, where it's uh, th this definition, determination of foreign use is really happens on an annual basis, right, based on the annual revenue that the recipient or the seller of the property g generates in that year. Uh, there are cases where, right, the uh, property is uh, sold or licensed in exchange for a lump sum payment. And, and there it is right, difficult to determine the future use. Uh, in that case, the foreign use is determined really based on the net present value um, of the revenue based on how the seller of the intangible property really determined the price and um, kind of allocation of that net present value of revenue between U.S. and um, non-outside uh, the U.S. sources. Okay, Carter Kay, we, we know documentation is important. Uh, explain what it's all about here. Yeah, so I, I'm going to, so Nini talked about a little bit about the documentation from an you know, the general contours of the documentation requirements. And then Olya touched upon a few aspects as well. Um, I'm just going to here focus on the foreign use criteria and the documentation that a taxpayer needs to have 
to meet, to demonstrate that the foreign use uh, criteria for a sales transaction is met. And again, the documentation requirements can be bifurcated between what apply to general property and what apply to intangible property. For general property, um, the idea is to have uh, documentation that is evidence of the foreign use of the property that is being transacted. And here, things like a written statement from the recipient that the property is in fact intended for foreign use um, achieves that, a binding contract between the parties um, that, that the property is in fact sold for foreign use. Um, and then other things like documentation of uh, shipment to a location outside the US, so things like uh, an export bill, uh, custom certificates and that kind of stuff can you know can help meet the documentation requirement. Now, Olya mentioned uh, in certain instances, uh, it's not going to be possible to to reliably track uh, the use of a property. So when you have multiple items of property, the so-called fungible mass concept is is addressed in the in the regulations, and there you can rely on statistical sampling and other market research. Um, to demonstrate, to, to first of all ascertain how much of that property is uh, is intended for foreign use, and if you find out that more than ninety percent is um, is for foreign use, then all of that all of that transaction is then uh, an FDDEI sale. If it's less than ten percent, then none of that transaction um, is is deemed to be an FDDEI sale. And then in between, it's a proportionate uh, allocation. Now, for it, for intangible property, the criteria is if the revenues, if, if the intangible property is actually used to generate revenues um, outside the United States. And so here, the documentation is about um, ascertaining where the revenues are generated. Those revenues could be generated from, um, you know, sublicensing the IP, from reselling the IP, or more generally from um, um, you know, selling uh, products that embody the IP in some, in some form. And so the documentation requirements are about um, uh, you know, data or statements, for example, from the recipient that show where the revenues uh, are being generated from that IP, a binding contract that, for example, limits uh, the recipient to the use of that IP overseas would be one element of that documentation, and similarly, um, audited financial statements that show that bifurcation between revenues generated outside the U.S. versus the U.S. can help uh, meet that documentation requirement. Another point that Olya touched upon, and which I'm going to just focus on a little bit because it feeds into the point that I made earlier about transfer pricing or transfer pricing-like principles having a place in this, in this determination, is when the proceeds from the sale or a license of, of uh, intangible property take the form of either lump sum payments or periodic payments that are not contingent on revenues, then the regs require the seller or the licensor uh, to do a net present value analysis. And that net present value analysis needs to adopt the perspective of the seller. And I think that's an important point. What revenues the seller would have expected to generate from that intangible property and how those revenues would uh, have been apportioned between um, the United States and the rest of the world, and take the net present value of that to determine how much of this transaction, how much of the lump sum or how much of the periodic payment is in fact for foreign use and therefore feeds into uh, FDDEI. 
Uh, one additional point that I will uh, make, which kind of struck me, uh, is that, you know, in transfer pricing, we do documentation, and we do documentation for um, accu accuracy-related penalties to avoid accuracy-related penalties. But the documentation that we're talking about here in the FDII context is actually has a far bigger implication in the sense that it's part and parcel of the definition of a transaction being viewed as an FDDEI transaction. So you can have substantive facts that are the same, uh, but if uh, the documentation requirement is not met, then that transaction automatically fails uh, the test of being viewed as a, a foreign-derived deduction eligible income sale or a service. And the government sort of recognizes that failing the documentation could take you in and out of the, the rules, right? That's why they actually have a rule that says, well, you, if, if it's going to be a negative impact on you because it's a loss, then you can't just affirmatively flunk the documentation in order to not include the income yeah. or the loss. I think that's a great point, yeah. It's a, it heads, you win, tails you lose from the government perspective kind of thing. Um, unfortunate, but hopefully they uh, really look at that because that's nowhere in the statute. At least it's nowhere in the statute. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's when you go through this list, it's like it's a yeah. transaction with third party, so yeah. you need to get the information from third yeah. party or get into the contract Correct. to have a proper language. Right, and I can tell as I've already begun to apply it with or think about applying it to some of the clients. What's on the list for acceptable uh, documentation doesn't really fit with with really what's going on, so it will be modified. Hopefully, it'll, the consequences may be lightened too. I, I mean, as written right now, it also in in some instances it's going to require a non-trivial uh, change in the way parties conduct business, in the sense that you know it'll require further obligations or requests on the part of a seller, um, or you know, seller asking basically the recipient to provide these kinds of uh, and 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 it's not, like I said, in some cases, it's not a non-trivial cost that will have to be incurred. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you. Agreed. Agreed.